Well, Jesus is coming back. Not only Billy Graham says that, but the scripture says it. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the angels told the disciples he is coming back in the same way he just left. And so Christians since that day have believed and teach and proclaim that Jesus is coming back. In fact, we can look all the way back to the Nicaea Creed in 325 A.D. And it simply says this. He, referring to Jesus, will come to judge the living and the dead. Olive Branch's own doctrinal statement adds a few more words, but it says this. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world by Jesus Christ. Those who have accepted Christ as their Savior by faith shall go into everlasting life. Those who have rejected Christ shall go away into everlasting punishment. It's the same thing with more details, isn't it? More details about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back to those who believe and to those who don't believe. We are a Southern Baptist church, and the Southern Baptist Convention has a doctrinal statement, the Baptist faith and message. It was adopted in 2000, and this is what it says. A little bit more detail as well. God, in his own time and in his own way. I like that first phrase. It doesn't talk about when or how or the way he's going to do it. It just simply says somehow, some way, God's going to figure it out. And he's going to do it. God, in his own time and in his own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all. All, all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to the place to hell, the place of eternal punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Now, why am I boring you with these doctrinal statements? Okay, the reason I am is a purpose for it. It's to show you something that all Christians believe Jesus is coming back. We as Olive Branch Baptist Church believe that. All of us Southern Baptists believe that. Not just Southern Baptists, all Christians. But if you notice in those doctrinal statements, there isn't a lot of detail. Again, about when, about how, about those types of questions. And so Christians disagree about those answers dramatically. That's one reason that I put in there. Because there's such a difference of opinion of when Jesus is coming back, how he's coming back. And if I were here this morning to explain to you all the different views of that, we'd be here for a long time. And I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm going to share with you what I believe the scripture teaches about Christ coming back. But the reason I share that with you is because you may hear me say something this morning and you may hear another preacher, another denomination, another church and they say, no, that's not how it's going to go. I don't want you to think, well, my pastor said it's going to go this way, and this one says it's not going to go. Who's right? Well, we may both be right. We may both be wrong. Because we have to come to the future and to prophecy with some humility. Because remember from last week, some things are very clear about the future. It's clear. Jesus is coming back. No doubt about it. Everyone 100% agrees with that. When it gets down to the details, some are not as clear. Remember when Jesus came the first time, some of the details weren't as clear. Remember when he came the first time, there were even some things that he didn't tell us. 
And there may be things about the future that Jesus has not told us. So some things are going to be clear, no question. Lots of things are going to be not as clear. And we make conclusions and we make uh, logical deductions. And some things God kept to himself, maybe, and we don't even know about. We certainly can't get that right if we don't even know about it. So keep that in mind as I share with you from Matthew chapter 24 what Jesus says about the future. Remember last week, the disciples asked Jesus this question. Tell us when these things will happen and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now remember that they were looking at the temple. And when they saw the magnificent buildings all around the temple and all the buildings around it, they were amazed. And Jesus said, you see this stuff? All these stones are going to be torn down. I'm certain when the disciples then asked the question, when are these things going to happen and what are the signs of your coming in the end? They were thinking about Zechariah chapter 14. Because in that chapter, the prophet Zechariah tells us there's coming a day when the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. When that city is destroyed, the Messiah will come. And when the Messiah comes, he will establish his kingdom. And so when Jesus talked about the city, specifically the temple being destroyed, I'm sure it triggered in their mind, okay, this is what Zechariah talked about. Okay, we got it, Jesus. We know what you're talking about. When's it going to happen? What are going to be the signs? And so Jesus answers the questions based on Zechariah 14. So I believe what he's sharing is really a commentary on this chapter, so to speak. He's adding, he's complimenting, but he's not giving us the whole picture of the future in Matthew chapter 24. There's things in that chapter that's in the future that he doesn't talk about. And therefore, we shouldn't read that chapter and think this is the whole picture. Because I believe he was focusing on where the disciples were focusing on, the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus coming back, establishing his kingdom. And one of the things that's not in Zechariah 14, Jesus doesn't teach in Matthew 24. In fact, Jesus doesn't teach it anywhere. And his teachings, yet it's a truth, an event in the future, is the rapture. We know this was not taught before until the Apostle Paul gave it to us because he calls it a mystery. Remember, a mystery isn't something that is a puzzle that you try to figure out. And that God gives you uh, some code and God gives you some uh, things to decipher and unveil and figure out and put it all together like you're playing Clue. That's not what a mystery is in the New Testament. When Paul talks about mysteries, he's telling us a truth that's being revealed now to the church that wasn't revealed in the past. See, God has never given us all the truth at one time. He didn't give Adam and Eve the whole scriptures as soon as they walked out of the Garden of Eden. It was over centuries, millennia, that he gave truth and revealed it through prophets and authors. So Jesus himself didn't teach about the rapture. But it's true. 
And he revealed that truth to the Apostle Paul, and he tells us about it. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. Do you hear, see the word mystery? He said, this is a mystery. Uh, the Corinthians hadn't heard this. Uh, the Christians hadn't heard this. Because this was a new revelation from Jesus to Paul. But it's true, and now we know it. <laughs> and it is telling us about our future. See, Paul is talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And think about it. If you have to die to get to heaven, what happens if you don't die? That's what Paul's addressing here. He's saying, yeah, the normal way to get to heaven is to die. And Christians knew about the resurrection. But Paul says, now, wait a minute. There's going to be some of us that are going to be alive when Jesus returns. We're not going to have to die. But we're still going to go to heaven. But how are we going to do that? We don't want to go to heaven with these bodies. Do you? I don't want to go to heaven with this body. It'll wear out in a few years if it's not already worn out. So that wouldn't be very long in heaven. We need a glorified body. We need a resurrection body. But how do you get a resurrection body if you're not dead to be resurrected? Paul explains in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, there is going to be a trumpet call. There's going to be a voice from heaven. Jesus is going to come in the air. Those who are dead in the graves, who are believers, will be resurrected and meet the Lord. And we have our bodies transformed without having to die and be resurrected into glorified bodies. And we'll meet the Lord in the air. He talks more about it in 1 Thessalonians. Again, the Thessalonians were concerned about their loved ones who had died. See, in Paul's day, they were expecting Jesus to come now. You know, the disciples, I believe when Jesus said, when the angel said he's coming back, they thought tomorrow, the next week. They weren't thinking 2,000 years later. And the Christians in the first century truly believed that Jesus was coming back in their generation. Well, all of a sudden, their generation started to die. And there was concern. Uh, these people have died and Jesus hasn't come back yet. What's going to happen to them? Paul says, don't worry. He says this. Then we are, he talks first about those people. Then he talks about us. Those who are still alive, who are left. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Dead in Christ. Those who are alive. Transformed. Changed. Caught up to meet the Lord. That's the rapture. And that is what Paul says is our hope and our comfort. The loved ones in the first generation who were dying, they had a future. Their bodies would be resurrected. Christians who are alive have a future in heaven. Not with these earthly bodies, but with glorified bodies. Because they're going to be transformed and changed. And Paul says to comfort each other with those words. This is the truth, but when you read Matthew 24, it's not in there. And it makes it difficult to know where to put the rapture in relation to Matthew 24 and to Daniel and to Revelation. You think there's disagreement about Jesus coming back. There's even more disagreement about when this is going to happen. <laughs> Remember I said some things are very clear? 
Some things less clear. It's clear this is going to happen. There's no doubt about that. But these are really the only two verses about it. When's it going to happen? There's no clue or no indication in these verses. We get a hint from Revelation that talks about, and also 1 Thessalonians, where 1 Thessalonians talks about how we as Christians are not prepared, have not been prepared for the wrath to come. You put Thessalonians and Revelation together, you do get a clue that we who are Christians, God did not plan for us to be here when he brings his final wrath on this earth. And so that's why I think this rapture is going to happen before the events, most of the events in Matthew 24, and happen before a lot of the events in Revelation. This is going to happen. This is the next thing that we as Christians are looking for. It comes without any signs. It could come at any moment. And that's why we have hope. As I've already said, the first generations of Christians, they had this hope Jesus could have come back at any moment. They didn't have to wait for a bunch of signs. He could have been back that week after he left. And for us, Jesus could come back today without any signs, without any uh, buildup. He comes back. And that's our hope and our glory that we're waiting for. Well, let's look at Matthew 24 because there is information about the future there. And I believe the rapture fits in there. This is how I believe the future is going to unfold. We're waiting for the rapture. We're in this church age now where we are the church. And Jesus hasn't come back yet. So we're waiting. We're in between the cross and his return. But there's going to be that rapture. And then at some point after that, I assume almost instantaneously or immediately, there's going to be a, a, a covenant that's signed with Israel, with the Jews. And that will start a period of time that's called the tribulation. You put Daniel and Revelation and Matthew and Thessalonians, you have to put a lot of scriptures together. You get this timeline, a, a, a time of seven years of wrath and of suffering that leads up to Jesus returning, setting up his kingdom. And then after that, Jesus is going to judge one last time and then for all eternity, the righteous in heaven and the unrighteous in hell. Again, think about Zechariah. The destruction of Jerusalem, the coming of the Lord, and the establishment of his kingdom. In Matthew 24, Jesus is going to talk about the sign of that happening. But the rapture, as I said, is, is not in there. So look at this and let's try to fit in Matthew 24 with this timeline of the future. The beginning of the labor pains is in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. Now, ladies, don't get angry with me when I ask you this, okay? I assume the first labor pains compared to the ones at the end are relatively easy. I don't mean easy. I mean relatively easy. Is that true? I mean, even at the beginning, you may have things that feel like labor, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, go back home. It's not labor. You can have Braxton Hicks contractions. You could have the baby pounding you, I guess. You could uh, have bad indigestion, and it can cause pain. 
And it can be maybe labor, maybe not. If it is labor, it's relatively mild, bearable. And some foolish mothers I've heard have said, oh, I can handle this when they have the first labor pains, okay? So the point is the labor pains begin relatively easy, relatively painless, bearable, manageable, but they intensify and they get worse, very, very worse. And that's the analogy that Jesus is using when he talks about the future. He says this in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. So I... Well, I think Jesus is saying that we live in a world that's filled with sin. It's filled with sinful people. It's filled with the consequences of sin. And there are certain tragedies. There are certain horribleness. There are certain uh, things that cause death, destruction, that are always going to be with us. Whether the end is imminent or whether the end is thousands of years away. And so he's saying, be aware of that. Because just because you see some of these signs, he talks about false messiahs, wars, famines, earthquakes. It doesn't necessarily mean the end is coming. In fact, he says, if you hear about wars and false messiahs, that's not the end. That's just life. So I believe he's talking here about where we are now. I believe verses 4 through 8 describe us and every Christian who's lived since Jesus left. We've been in this church age. We have been in the beginning of the labor pains all along. And so we see famine, earthquakes. We see destruction. We see war. We see death. We see pestilence and plague. We see hatred. We see all these things. But those aren't necessarily the signs the end is coming. That's living on a planet that's filled with sin. But then Jesus says, then. I think that's an important time marker because he says these labor pains are going to happen. Even specifically says a couple of them aren't the sign of the end. But his next word is then. Something different is going to happen. And that's in verses 9 through 14. Then... They will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations... And then the end will come. I believe he's talking about here that general period of tribulation. That seven years. Why seven years? We learned that from Daniel. And I can't go into all the details. But from Daniel we learn this period of tribulation and God's wrath is seven years in length. 
And during that time, all of these things are going to happen. Look at them again. Persecution, falling away, betrayal, hatred, false messiahs, lawlessness, love will grow cold. The good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed. These things will happen, I believe, in this whole seven-year period. And the reason I think it's the whole period because he talks about the end coming in verse 13 and the end coming in verse 14. But then in verse 15, he's talking about some more stuff. So if the end came in verse 14, why is there any more after the end? So verse 15 gives us more detail about this time. But these verses describe it in general, the whole time. It's going to be a time where all of these things take place. All of them are bad except for the good news of the kingdom being spread. You see, what's going to happen is what we've experienced so far with all the famine, war, destruction, death, it's going to increase as those labor pains do as well. And this is more specific and more evil. Hatred, Betrayal, falling away, lawlessness. The world is going to be a worse place. The only good thing in this time is the preaching of the good news. And you say, well, where, who's doing that? Aren't all the Christians in heaven? Well, yes. The Christians who are on this earth when Jesus comes in the air are going to meet him in the air. And there aren't going to be any for a moment. Some are going to see what happened, repent, and be saved. They're going to go and tell the message and warning others about what's to come. When they see that happening, don't you think they'll be looking at their Bibles, looking at Revelation, looking at uh, uh, Matthew? And don't you think they'll have a clue as to what's coming? It's going to be clearer and clearer to them as the things unfold. They're going to be obedient to the Lord and they're going to share the news. And more people are going to repent because they see the destruction and they know the end is coming and they want to be ready for the Lord. And so the word is going to spread. The good news is going to spread and people are going to be saved in that awful period of tribulation. The verse says, Jesus says, those who endure to the end will be saved. I want you to understand that. He's not saying that those who make it all the way through are going to earn their salvation because somehow they dodged all of the tragedy and the death and destruction and because they were great at running or great at hiding or had good genes or something like that, that they are going to survive and they're going to be rewarded with heaven. What he's simply saying is that those who make it to the end are going to be delivered. Isn't it true that the word saved can mean more than saved from sin and saved from hell? You can be saved from a bad conversation. You can be saved from a bad relationship. You can be saved from a bad day at school. You can be saved. And we talked about school, Jackson. If you have a bad day at school, those who endure to the end of the bad school, they will be delivered by their parents picking them up. Okay, so that's the idea here. There is a, a, a wrath and an evil and a destruction and death that's going to come to an end with deliverance for those who endure it. So that's what Jesus is saying there. This is the problem we have with these verses. 
Remember back in the good old days when you could go to a football game? Those good old days, a year ago, when you could file into a stadium and enjoy the game. Now, I want you to imagine there was an alien from Mars. And the alien from Mars goes to his first football game, and the alien's never seen a football game, and he asks a simple question. When is the end? What is the sign that the end of the game has come? What if you told them it's when people gather their things and leave for the exits? That would be true, wouldn't it? That's a completely true statement. When people gather their things and head for the exits, that's the end. He says, okay, I got it. So the alien's watching the game. He sees a family. Maybe the the kid throws up too many hot dogs or whatever. The beer gets spilled on him from behind or whatever. So now the family gathers their things and they head for the exits. So he says, oh, it's the end of the game. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not the end yet. I mean, he was was just getting, you know, the kid has a problem here. They had to leave. He says, okay. Halftime comes. People start gathering up their things. They head for the exits. He says, okay, let's go. The game's over. No, 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 no. It's not over yet. It's just halftime. There's another whole half to play. Okay. Well, the home team is losing by 40 points. Okay, so there's five minutes left in the game. Three quarters of the stadium gather up their things and head for the exits. He says, okay, now almost everybody's leaving. This has to be the end. No, 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 no. It's not the end yet. Well, what do you tell? You told me when people gather their things and leave for the exits, it's the end of the game. That's true. Well, it's happened three times yet, and it's not the end of the game. Then you'd have to say, well, uh, it doesn't only happen at the end of the game. See, that's the point. It doesn't only happen. Yes, it does happen at the end of the game, but it happens at other times in the game. There's only one sign that shows you definitely that the game is over. That's a scoreboard with quarter number four and zero, zero, zero on the clock. That's the only sign that it happens only once and definitely signifies the end of the game. The alien wasn't that smart to ask that question, okay? So this is my point. What we read as the signs, persecution, destruction, false messiahs, uh, you name it. We can look at them and we say, that is now. And you would not be wrong. Christians probably a thousand years ago could have said, this is now, and they would not have been wrong. But the problem is, it's not the only sign of the end. Yes, these are signs of the end. It's the truth. It's not a lie. It's not a deception. It's not a half-truth. It's the truth. But because we live in a world that's filled with sin, sin, consequences of sin, happen every day. Yes, they will intensify. In fact, they're going to intensify so much, I'm going to read how bad it's going to get in the next verses. But this is the problem. We don't know the worst it can get. Only God knows that. We may feel this is the worst. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's only half as worse as it's going to get. If you knew that, you'd say, oh gosh, this doesn't mean the end is near at all. So that is the problem with trying to find in a generation, in in a decade, and point to these things, death, destruction, famine, being persecuted. I mean, pointing to that and saying against kingdom, 
uh, persecution, Christians being persecuted. I mean, pointing to that and saying, well, this has to be the end because this is happening. It may be the end, but maybe it's not. So Jesus gave one sign that's definitely the sign the end is here. Just like the fourth quarter, zeros on the scoreboard, Jesus gave us that sign. Do you want to know what that one is, right? Okay, well, let's get to that one. The one he gave is the abomination of desolation. Oh, brother, what's that? Well, let's read the verses. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says this. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get the things out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that you, your escape may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For that time there will be great distress. Now listen to this. The kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you then, see, here's the Messiah, or over here, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. So if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcasses, there the vultures will gather. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's now describing that last half. He called the time of great distress. And it begins with this abomination of desolation. It's clear kind of what it is. Daniel speaks of it. Antiochus Epiphanes, a leader in 168 B.C., goes into the temple erects a statue to Jupiter, a false god, slaughters a pig on the Jewish altar and desecrates the temple, makes it impossible to worship in once he does that to it. There's an example of what Jesus is talking about. There's going to be a time in the future when there is going to be a, a ruler. From the other scriptures we can put it together, it's the Antichrist or the beast that's spoken of. And he is going to set up in the temple an idol of himself and demand that he be worshipped. That's going to desecrate that temple and make it desolate. Jesus says when that happens, that's when you get out of town because that's when it's going to happen. This is when the end is coming now. He says to flee. Get out. And then he talks about how difficult it's going to be. Hope you don't have to flee in winter or on the Sabbath when resources are going to be scarce or it's going to be hard for people who are pregnant or have disabilities. It's going to be a difficult time. And notice what he says. It's going to be a time unlike any other that if God didn't cut it short, the human race would be extinct. Now, we've seen bad. And we've read in history books of bad. But we have not seen violence, hatred, calamities on this earth, we have not seen anything 
that would indicate to us that the human race is about to be extinct. That's how bad it's going to get. That is the definite 100% sign that Jesus is coming back. When the world gets to its worst, when the Antichrist demands to be worshipped, that's when we're going to know it's the end. But I just shared with you, those of us who are believers, we're not going to be there to see that. We're going to be in heaven. So why would Jesus talk about this? One, it shows us that God's in control. Because there's going to be people all the time telling us that the world is ending and this is what you need to do. Did you notice the only sign that's in all three, the early labor pains, the first of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation, are false messiahs. They're always around. They'll always be here because Satan was the first one. And he's not going anywhere until the Lord judges him for the last time. So Satan was the first false Messiah, so to speak. And he has been leading others, false preachers and false prophets and false messiahs to lead astray the, uh, God's people if it's possible, but certainly the people who aren't believers forever. And he's going to do it even more intensely in that time of distress. So God wants us to know he has a plan, he has a future. Don't listen to those who will tell you something contrary to what God says is going to happen. Don't believe it. It's not true. Have faith in God that he knows what he's doing. He's going to bring it all to an end. And trust him for your eternal salvation so that you are ready when he comes back. And I would almost apologize to you for asking you this question every week, but I'm not going to because it's the most important question. Are you ready? Do people want to know, is this the generation where Jesus is coming back? You know what my answer to that is? Yes. Why don't you always think it is? Because the hope is always that it could be. So yes, he's coming back. Are you ready? He's coming back in this generation. If he doesn't, he'll come back in the next generation. <laughs> and he'll come back in the next one. I mean, he's, he's coming. And for us who are waiting for the rapture, there are no signs for the rapture. Let's just be ready. And of course, as I shared last week, your end may be today. The rapture may be 2,000 years from now. The end of the world may be 20,000 years from now. And that's when the rapture happens then. We, we don't know. But your end is not going to be 20,000 years from now. <laughs> your end may be today, and it's certainly going to be in a few decades, not sooner. Are you ready for your end? Are you ready for the rapture? That is the biggest question. Prophecy and these truths that God gives us are for our comfort and to strengthen our faith. They're not to satisfy the curious and answer all the detailed questions about how you figure it all out. To let us know God's in control, he has a plan, trust him, believe in him, and be ready. That's why it's given to us. So that's the response this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful you gave us a look into the future. And thankful, Lord, that it's not a scary future. It's a future with you. So I pray, Lord, right now that we would respond to this truth with humbling before you and looking at our hearts and knowing that we are ready for your coming. Or we're ready for our last breath on this earth. Lord, I pray 
now for those who are not believers that right now they would believe and be saved. For us who are Christians, I pray not only would we rejoice in the fact that we're ready, but that we would warn other people. Lord, I, I know so many times we as Christians are just thankful and rejoice that when the rapture comes, we're meeting the Lord in the air. And we don't stop long enough to think about those who are going to be left behind. A loved one, a neighbor. Lord, we must tell them and warn them what's coming. May we be motivated to do that by uh, the awfulness of the future, but also the love that you give that keeps us from having to see that future. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name.